This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we are joined in studio by Ruthie Mundell, who is the Director of Outreach and Education at Community Forklift, which is the Washington, D.C. region's nonprofit reuse center for home improvement and architectural salvage. This is PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Ruthie, welcome to PreserveCast. Thank you. Uh, great to have you here. The question we normally open up with in these interviews is to get a sense about uh, who you are, where you came from, and perhaps how you followed this path to this you know, unique niche in preservation, which is what you're doing today at Community Forklift. So how'd you get there? Sure. Um, well, I like to call it my origin story, like a superhero. We all wear t-shirts at work that say salvage superheroes. This is my salvage origin story. I uh, grew up down in Southern Maryland, um, right on the water in this beautiful old brick cottage. And it was a, an idyllic childhood. And then when I was 16, our landlord decided to sell the property. We'd done some home improvement on it, even though we were renters. They didn't charge us much rent in exchange for not complaining if it was falling down around our ears. So I'd spent my childhood with my mom in hardware stores, and we'd even put an addition on the house. We'd added a room on to the house. And so I was so upset when they decided they were going to tear this house down. And I actually snuck over after dark. I didn't have my driver's license yet, but I borrowed my mother's station wagon after we'd moved out, and they'd started demolishing this, this little cottage, and I took a whole bunch of bricks from the job site. <laughs> and so that was maybe, a, I didn't know it then, but that was foreshadowing for my future life. And um, so then I uh, went off to college. I studied political science, environmental studies. I knew I wanted to be a tree hugger. Wasn't sure if law school was right for me, but I thought perhaps environmental law. I ended up doing environmental education for a while. I was putting off law school, and then I decided to keep putting it off, <laughs> and I did fundraising. Uh, my mother passed away. I went home to take care of her. I'd been living in the D.C. area. I went back to Southern Maryland to take care of her, and after she died, I realized I, I don't want to go back to an office and fundraise. I don't want to wear pantyhose and sit at a computer all day. I'd like to do something that's just more fun day to day, and I was at a job fair was sponsored by Green America, used to be called Co-op America, for sustainable businesses. And I stumbled on this fellow who was sitting at a table, and I didn't really know what his display was about. I wouldn't have stopped if I hadn't been job hunting. It had some odds and ends, some pieces of old houses and old bricks and things on the table. So I stopped to talk to him. He explained to me, oh, it's this uh, new place that's about to open up. It's going to be a warehouse for old house parts, sort of like a, a Goodwill crossed with a Home Depot. I said, oh, that's perfect for me. Okay, you need to hire me. And I was like 24. And he said, well, we're hiring for a CEO. I said, okay, maybe I'm not CEO level yet, but why don't you hire me until you find one? And so then I've been there ever since. It's been uh, 12 years this November, and I've done just about everything. I haven't driven the truck and I haven't done the books, but I've, I've done just about every other job at Community Forklift. Well, that's really awesome. That's a great, that's a great origin story. <laughs> and I like that you were, you know, a 16-year-old doing deconstruction, which is kind of neat. 
what is community forklift? I mean, you kind of gave a, an interesting little snapshot of it, calling it sort of the cross between uh, a Goodwill and a, and a Home Depot. But if someone were to walk into your store, what is it when you go in there? What is it that you guys do? What is the service that you provide? The easiest way to explain it is that we're a thrift store, and instead of taking dishes or clothing, we take home improvement supplies and antiques. We're a little bit more than that. I don't always use the word thrift store. It's a good shorthand, but we call ourselves a reuse center because we're all about making reuse happen. And whether that means that we're accepting donations of building materials and home improvement supplies, or it means that we are giving away free materials, selling them in the warehouse, or finding interesting artistic uses for materials, developing new new ways for people to use things or encouraging artists. We're just about making reuse happen. So we've got this 40,000 square foot building. It's full of house parts from every era. Uh, We didn't used to take furniture, but we've started to take furniture. We realized that the same person who was interested in the clawfoot tub or a cool old chandelier might also be interested in a 1920s wardrobe. So we do take antique and solid wood furniture pieces as well. So you walk in and there's this dazzling array of light fixtures. We've got 1,500 doors, probably 600 windows at any given time. We've got a brand new stuff still in the package. Every time a contractor messes up their measurements, we end up with some cool donation. In addition, actually, in the construction industry, it's pretty standard for contractors to overorder by about 10% when they're ordering supplies. And so at the end of a renovation, we might get cool old things they've taken out, but we'll also get some surplus stuff. Well, and that kind of leads me, you're saying that you might get things, you get this, the Goodwill model, the thrift store that you might be familiar with is sort of the idea that like I've dropped clothes off or dishes or things like that. How do you get your material? Where does it come from? Because you just named a couple different things. Does it come from consumers, contractors, everything? And, And how does it come in? It comes from all over. So we do have two big trucks now, big box trucks. We go all over the D.C. region, central Maryland, even into northern Virginia, and we pick up items at job sites. So let's say somebody's renovating their kitchen when they're taking out their old cabinets. They still might be in great shape. So we'll go pick them up. They get a nice tax deduction for the donation, and then we get some cool materials to bring back to our warehouse. Uh, We also have a ton of people that drop things off. So it's everything from somebody who's doing a spring cleaning of their garage to someone whose parent has passed away or is moving to a retirement home and they're trying to clean out the the workshop and there's grandpa's tools and you know you don't really need 15 hammers well let's take a few over to the forklift so we're open seven days a week and we have people pulling up to our donation stock seven days a week dropping off all sorts of cool stuff so it's homeowners it's individuals it's contractors we even get entire buildings donated to us through entire buildings yes and um instead of bulldozing an old house let's say that you buy a property and it's going to cost more money to renovate and improve that little house than it would be to tear it down and build something bigger so you're typically just going to bulldoze it. And all that gorgeous material from the little old house just goes to the landfill. It goes to ruin all the beautiful old growth lumber, the bricks that were made here in Maryland, you know, all of those pieces. Even if it was a house just built in the 1960s and very modest, not particularly stylish, it still has really good guts in it. You know, it's got neat materials. And it's a shame that 
all that's just going to be sent to the landfill to create methane and cause climate change. Instead, we'd rather that you hire a deconstruction crew. We work with a couple of different companies and nonprofits that do deconstruction. So you don't do it yourself, but you can help someone get in touch with a crew to deconstruct a building. At the moment, we don't do it ourselves. We'd like to. That's one area we'd like to grow into. But yeah, so we've got a bunch of different partners that do. And so it can be anywhere from just a typical renovation company that might just be doing the inner part of a house. Maybe you're just redoing your kitchen. And so they come in and they use more care than an ordinary, you know, they don't take a sledgehammer to your cabinets. Instead, they'll pull up your floorboards carefully, remove all the materials carefully and make sure and arrange for the donation. Or it can be a full-scale deconstruction company that's taking a building all the way down to the ground. And if it was built by hand, it's actually not that hard to do. Sure, if it was built in the 1990s and it's all made of particle board and glue, yeah, it's not easy to deconstruct it. There's not much (laughs) of value. It's all plastic and glue. But if it's an older home that was built by hand with real materials, then it's easy enough to take it apart by hand. It might take a few weeks instead of a few days. And there's a cost associated with it? Is there a cost difference than demo? Well, there is in that if you're bulldozing, you're just paying a few people a few days to come and wreck everything. But then you're paying landfilling fees. If you're throwing out the whole house, you're having to pay by the ton to throw it out. But if you're doing deconstruction, you have the cost of it being a few weeks of labor. You've got a crew, maybe a dozen people for a couple of weeks. They're taken down to the ground. Labor's expensive. But if you're only throwing out 20% of the building, if they're saving 80% of it either to be recycled or reused, you're basically paying people to work instead of paying landfilling fees. So the cost is similar in reality? Well, it depends on the building. It depends on the materials that are in the building because the big thing that makes it worthwhile is the tax deduction. You're donating all of these great materials to a nonprofit like us. And so you're getting a tax deduction for all these materials you're donating. And that's where it really makes a difference. So um, yes, you're paying more in labor, but depending on your tax bracket, depending on how much the materials are worth, you can be getting this huge tax savings because you've just made this generous donation of materials. So that's what makes it worthwhile for most people who choose to deconstruct. Hmm. So now once the materials get to you, you've got them in your hands, do you have to do much prep work with them? I mean, I know people who work around old homes, you know, there's concerns about lead and asbestos and things like that. Do you get worried about that kind of stuff? Do you prep that? How does it go from it's been dropped off from the station wagon in front of community forklift to it's for sale? Yeah. So it's been a real learning process for us. The hardest job is actually sometimes before we take the materials, it's in figuring out what can we or should we be taking and what should we be turning down? So over the years, we've learned that certain things we shouldn't take. What's that? What shouldn't you take? Oh, gosh. It can be something as simple as dishwashers. I I don't know why. Dishwashers must just be badly designed, but often people will take them out of one house. You try and put them in another. They just leak. You know, one out of every three dishwashers used to come back to us, so we finally just stopped taking them. Um, It can be things like lumber that has a significant amount of lead paint on it. If a door is a beautiful historic door and uh, we know that it's going to be worth enough to somebody that they'll be willing to strip the lead paint safely and do it in an approved way, then yes, we'd be interested in the door. But if the door is already pretty damaged, it's got a lot of lead paint flaking off of it, and we know that somebody's just going to take it and use it to make a cute, chippy craft project and then have all that lead paint lying on the floor for their toddler. No, we don't We don't want to keep that in use. We're, we know that somebody's not likely to handle it appropriately, so we're going to turn that down. So there's a lot of training we have to do with our employees. And 
The cool part about taking such interesting stuff from every era and from taking grandpa's junk drawer, all this little hardware and doodads, is that it does create work. It's a lot of work to sort through it, and then it's a lot of work to research it and figuring out what the heck should we put a price on it? How much should we charge for this? How should we display it? How can we safely display things like glass or, you know, in a way that they won't be damaged in our warehouse? And so because that takes a lot of labor, it's good because it means we're creating jobs at our warehouse. So there is a significant amount of work that you're doing before it ends up in the consumer's hands. Yeah, we're we're certainly whether even if it's just researching what it is, even if it's in perfect and pristine out condition, what price to put on it. Yeah, researching what is it, what should we charge for it, and and how do we store it safely so that a customer can come and find what they need it takes a lot of work. Let alone something like cleaning or repairing. We do some very basic repairs to older cabinets, things like that. We might you know tighten a hinge, but we're not yet at the level where we have a whole repair shop. We'd like to get there. Yeah. And you're not abating lead or anything like that. So you're Mm-mm. you're just advising people on how they should take Yeah, take we have handouts. We try to give uh, resources to people as much as we can. We also do educational workshops throughout the year about different aspects of old home repair. And when lead comes into it, we mention that. We're trying to uh, build up our resources list too, not just around lead, but around all sorts of home repair issues. So we've got a bunch of binders full of business cards from tradespeople who handle everything from how to repair rattan furniture to Mm -hmm. (laughs) how to repair old wood windows. Okay. And give me a sense on the pricing. Is it a better deal to shop with a reuse center like a community forklift than it is to go to Home Depot? I'm guessing the answer is yes. Oh, yes. So for modern items that you could find an equivalent at Home Depot, we generally are 40 to 70% cheaper, depending on condition of the item, demand for it, that sort of thing. So Home Depot, you might buy a cheap hollow core door for $25. You're going to come to us and get it for $2. Or maybe it'll be in the free pile. Wow. <laughs> We've got, you know, garbage disposals for $10 or $15. Um, so there's some significant savings on the modern stuff. But even the vintage items that we carry, we look up what it might cost at an antique store. And we're still trying to price it at least 10 maybe 20 or 30% less than what the market would bear. Because we want to make those cool old materials affordable for people who have them and you know not not all the vintage stuff has to go into the nicest houses in town some of it we'd like it to go into the more modest houses too yeah no i think that makes a lot of sense well this has been really fascinating so far why don't we take a quick break and when we come back maybe start talking a little bit about the ethics of all of this work because there's a lot of questions around this and i'd love to pick your brain about where you stand on all that and how the field that you're involved in is shifting and how it's changing and what's ahead for places like community forklift so we'll do that when we come back right here on preservecast sounds good Last week saw the conclusion of what many Marylanders know are the 11 best days of summer, the Maryland State Fair. Maryland State Fair has operated from the same fairgrounds in Lutherville since 1879, when fairgoers arrived via wagons and carts driven along the York Turnpike, now York Road, to celebrate at what was then called the Timonium Estate. In the early days, popular attractions consisted of sideshows, sack races, and greased pole climbing, and concessions were provided by the farmers' wives. Initially, the fair was intended just for residents of Baltimore County, but it was so much fun, it naturally grew over time. One big moment was the 1906 merger with the Pimlico Fair, which also laid a claim to the title of State Fair. 
I think in the end, both groups were happy with the result. One massive, undisputable state fair. Other notable moments in the fair's history include a brief period of three years when the fair was canceled during World War II because the fairgrounds were being rented to the army. The fair quickly returned, but then in the 1950s, the fairgrounds themselves were nearly sold to developers. But luckily, a grassroots group of business and community leaders, as well as horse and agricultural enthusiasts, joined together and raised $600,000 to buy the grounds and keep the fair alive. In some ways, the fair has changed over the years, but it still remains a showcase for the state's agricultural heritage and an opportunity for Marylanders to enter their champion livestock, giant produce, and homemade food and baked goods into competition. Or, if you're looking for more of a thrill, every year there are carnival rides like the Zipper, featured all along the Midway. And there's always refreshment at the Maryland Foods Pavilion and Dairy Bar. <sighs> oh well. Guess it's one more year until the fair comes again. But in the meantime, let's get back to PreserveCast. Do you have questions? We may have answers. If at any point during this podcast you've thought of a question that you have for us or maybe one of our guests, we'd love to hear about it. You can send an email to podcast at presmd.org and we'll try and answer it right here on the air on the next episode of PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're joined in studio today by Ruthie Mundell, who is the Director of Outreach and Education at Community Forklift, which is the Washington, D.C. region's nonprofit reuse center for home improvement and architectural salvage. And before we took our break, we heard a lot of really good stuff about sort of the background of how Community Forklift works and what you can do when you go there, what you can expect to find, that it's a great deal to shop at reuse places like Community Forklift. And before we left off, I was sort of setting up this next segment and talking about the ethics of all of this. So, you know, for some preservationists, architectural salvage can be seen as sort of walking this fine line between true salvage and, and taking things that are destined for the landfill and diverting them from that and saving these wonderful resources. And then there's sort of like the is that looting historic resources? Are you, you know, are people going out and stripping old buildings and just trying to get the good stuff out of them and then selling that? Uh, where are you guys on all that? Is there a lot of ethical questions involved in your work? And how do you navigate all that? I think it's really important thing to talk about. When I, uh, 12 years ago, first started working at the forklift, we just opened, and I was hanging out with a friend here in Baltimore and met her neighbor. I was explaining what I did. And just gave her a you know, brief explanation. And then she laid into me. She was so upset. She said, well, my family had a house. My grandmother passed away. And before we could sell the house, uh, thieves came in. Addicts came in and stripped out the mantelpiece. They stripped out the stained glass and the doors. And they sold them to a place like you just to make money for drugs. And our family history and the value that our family inherited was gone because all these beautiful things were gone from the house. How can you defend what you do? And I was, oh my gosh, that, that was horrifying to hear that sad story. I felt so bad for the woman. And I said, well, you know, that's true. If we were a place that bought only really high-end, really beautiful, significant, cute pieces, um, and we paid lots of money for it, then yeah, we'd be motivating addicts to steal things. But we're a very different model. 
and the whole industry that we're part of, of reuse centers and deconstruction companies, most of us are not taking materials out of buildings where folks <laughs> don't want the pieces taken out of. Where Most of what we're getting is stuff that was going to be going to the landfill. It's the owner of that building has decided for whatever, however many reasons, financial, um, maybe it's just aesthetic reasons, maybe they just don't like that era of building, but they have bound and determined they're going to be getting rid of that. And so we're providing another option. Instead of sending that beautiful material to the landfill, we're saying, hey, we'll give you a tax deduction if you take a little bit of time and take it out carefully. That might be worth your while. And, you know, you'll be helping your community. You'll be a good citizen. And so we're providing some incentive for people to not do the worst thing, to not just waste materials. But we're not necessarily creating a market for stolen goods for people to just pull out material that shouldn't be pulled out. Right. And because you're not buying it, that really mm -hmm. kind of cuts down on that because people who are looking to make a big profit don't just want to tax, uh, you know. Yeah. Nobody's going to pull something out of a building just to get a tax deduction. That's not going to motivate them, but perhaps it will motivate them to at least not throw in the dump. The other thing that I think is really a benefit, and we've overall, we've most preservationists I've run into have been big fans of community mm, forest. Myself lists. included. Yes. <laughs> and, and come visit us often um, because we're making it easier for people to preserve old buildings. If we have the heart pine flooring or the old uh, true dimensional joists, then it means that it's easier to repair an old building. And so you can keep that building in use longer. It's not you know, oh, it's so expensive to to repair this. We might as well just rip it all down. Um, instead, it's like, well, no, we can keep up with the repairs for a little while longer. We can keep this building in use. If we're keeping lots of buildings in use, then it means neighborhoods are cleaner and safer. People are investing more in the neighborhoods. You're attracting more investment to neighborhoods. I'm the, the daughter of a community college professor who is the first person in his family to go to college. He grew up in a converted chicken shack, actually, after the Great Depression. So I have a real orientation. I'm, I, I'm very interested in the places where working people have lived over the years and that history, you know. And it, so it's easier to preserve. It's still a fight, but it's easier to preserve houses of famous and important people and beautiful mansions and things. But a lot of the history of African Americans, a lot of the history of poor people has just been destroyed over the years because it's nothing incredibly beautiful. It's very prosaic places where people lived and worked. But if we make it easier for their descendants who may also still not have very much resources or their neighborhoods, their community development corporations, and you know, if we make it easier for somebody to preserve the home uh, where a former enslaved person had lived, then you know, that means that history is preserved too. Yeah, yeah. I think that the reuse centers are playing a, a critical role in all of this. I mean, I, I see them as one cog in the wheel kind of moving things around and you have to have this because not only is it more expensive to maybe find these pieces or heart pine flooring elsewhere, it oftentimes is just impossible. You just yeah. can't find the materials. The only places you're going to find it is in a reuse center and it's much better that it ends up there than the landfill. Any guidelines that there are in the world of, of reuse? I mean, are there things that you guys sort of all agree to? Or mm. are there things that when people are looking to go out, perhaps someone listening to this, and we have, you know, an audience for around the whole country. So someone who can't make it to Community Forklift because they live a thousand miles away, anything that they should be thinking about or looking for in a reuse center to make sure it's legit and they're supporting a good a good player in the industry? 
Yeah. So we're actually a member of the Building Materials Reuse Association, which is small little nonprofit, you know, um, but it's sort of a trade group for stores like ours, for deconstruction companies, for anybody who deals and reclaims wood or other building materials. And it's still a pretty young industry in some ways. You know, yes, we've always had the fancy antique stores who preserve the clawfoot tubs. But in terms of places that want to preserve everything, even the floor joists, even, you know, the guts of a house, that's a little bit newer in some ways. We've gotten away from it for the last few generations. And so it's only been the last 20 or 30 years that places like Community Forklift have been springing up. So we're still figuring out who we are as an industry. Um, The BMRA is an awesome resource. We have a conference every year where we can discuss issues and learn from each other. The hot issue right now is who is being a good player with the tax appraisals. That's our most controversial issue. If you uh, tell somebody this building is worth millions of dollars for tax deduction, but the materials in it really aren't worth that much, that could endanger our whole industry because the IRS could come crack down and say, sorry, you don't get tax deductions for donating building materials anymore. Right. And some in the preservation community may remember when that happened with the value of easements. So there was a whole sort of scandal around this idea of overvaluing easements. And so people were donating architectural easements on buildings, particularly in Washington, D.C., and creating this giant mess. And then the whole thing came crashing down. And now everybody's still terrified of them. So we don't want people to be terrified of donating stuff to community forklifts. So you're right. That is that's sort of a scary thing out there. Yeah. So there's there's a bit of self-policing happening. There's arguing within the industry. There's talking heatedly to each other to try to make sure that none of us are poisoning the well for all of us. And so we're trying to work uh, coming up with, over time, guidelines for people with appraisal. I'm hoping that's something that will happen in the next five years or so, sooner rather than later, would be great if we can all come to more consensus on that as an industry. But in terms of the ethics of it, there's so much out there going to waste that there's not necessarily a need for any of us to go be pillaging historic buildings. There's still so much coming to us from buildings that would just rot. You know, they're they're either going to be bulldozed or they're going to be bulldozed by neglect. It's a really cool cooperative industry in a lot of ways. Here in Maryland, we've got community forklift, but we've got several places operating in the Baltimore area. And we're just getting to the point where, you know, it's possible to make a living as a reuse professional who can go from what we've got one employee now who's leaving us. He wants to move to Baltimore. He loves Baltimore. And so he's he's going to find a place, a, a job at another place. He's just gotten hired. And that's really cool to see that we're maturing to the point where there's experts, valued expertise that we're really excited to have him because he had more knowledge of reuse than any old Joe off the street. Yeah. And I imagine that we haven't hit anywhere close to a saturation point because yeah. there's still a lot of building waste going into landfills. And not all of it is something that was built in the 1990s out of particle board and glue. To me, that suggests there's there's still work to be done. So there's still a need for probably even more of these places or the places that we have to expand and take on more. I mean, there's there's a lot of lot of stuff still headed to the landfill. The one thing that I will say probably uniformly frustrates all of us in the the reuse industry, the trend of reclaimed wood and the rustic look, the you know, schoolhouse industrial that kind of thing. It's awesome uh, that so many bars and cafes and interior designers have embraced the thought of reclaimed material giving character to a place. And when it's done right, it's amazing. When you've got a cool old building where they've still retained elements, they found a new purpose for building, like where we're sitting right here. This, right. Uh, you know, I walked in the door to come to the Preservation Maryland office and it looks like this cool old mill building with beautiful old wood floors. And yes, it wasn't 
useful as a mill anymore, but now it's being used by all these, you know, nonprofits and businesses, and it's a thriving workplace. But there's still Maryland bricks. There's still heart pine that may have been cut down nearby used in this building. It's really fun to see. And so I love that. But the thing that drives us nuts is when folks wanting to make a quick buck, large, big box, international retailers are selling things that are supposedly reclaimed lumber. Oh, this coffee table made out of reclaimed lumber. But guess what? It may have actually been made out of rainforest lumber, not sustainably harvested, and then just given a chemical treatment to make it look old. Right. Or even worse yet, if they don't even say it's from reclaimed, it's just made to look reclaimed. Yes. This is a piece of pine that has been beaten with a, you know, a piece yes. of brand new pine that's been beaten with a pipe or a chain and now and we, you know, slap some lacquer on it and it's exactly. it's it gives you that look. Happening. Yes. And you don't have to yes. get your fingers dirty. Yeah, so the more I'm my main role at Community Forklift as outreach and education person is to spread the gospel of what we do, spread the gospel of reuse. And so the more I can let folks know like, "Hey, we have the real stuff. You don't have to make it pretend you don't have to recreate it. it it actually still exists i happened to run into a friend of a friend in annapolis who um, loves building he started building really beautiful tables for bars and he didn't know where to get old lumber so he'd been going to the big box warehouses and, and buying stuff and beating it up with hammers i said no no come come visit me and he did and so now all of his stuff is authentically reclaimed and it's been very cheap for him he's you know 45 cents a foot for some of these cool old boards it's actually cheaper than going and buying new from home depot or lowe's so he's grateful i'm excited that he's now authentic authentic reclaimed wood. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so you've been at Community Forklift from the beginning. You precede the CEO, it sounded like from your explanation. Just barely. There. Just yeah. barely. <laughs> How has it changed over the years? What's what's changing and where are you guys headed? Oh, it's really fun. So when I came on board, it was like the second week after we'd opened our doors. I think I was the fourth employee. Uh, we've now grown to 40 employees plus a bunch of part-time um, you know, contractors and partners who also make revenue. We have some consignment partners who have some really cool stuff. So it's really neat to see that like here are all these jobs that have been created out of, out of trash, basically. When we first started, each of us did everything. Uh, you'd be researching what something was, and then you'd go out on the truck. And, you know, our, our president was also our truck driver. <laughs> you know, that's the way it is with a lot of startups. But because the mission was so cool and because it made so much financial sense for everyone, you know, it's a win for the folks who were donating and getting the tax deduction, the builders who are reducing waste, even the trash haulers. There's trash haulers who will go to pick up something. They'll, they'll help somebody clean out a garage or a house, and then they will stop off at us before they go to the landfill, and they'll try to give us as much as they can because that it, it's reducing their landfilling fees. So uh, it's a great deal for all of these folks who are donating. It's a great deal for the people who are shopping. And so then it's led to very loyal fans. We call them our forklift fans, all the folks who, who love our warehouse. And so what that means is we've been able to attract really cool employees, people who have really interesting backgrounds and skills. And so we've been able to grow fast. We attracted our CEO, Nancy Meyer. She had way back in her career, early on, she'd been one of the first female carpenters in the DC Carpenters Union. Um, she'd then run other nonprofits. She ran a domestic violence shelter. She worked for Whitman Walker in DC. So she knew a lot about how to run a nonprofit, and she came on board. My favorite story to tell is she walked in and said, wait, why don't we take credit cards? It was still the first year of operation, and we just hadn't 
picked a credit card processing company and figured out the paperwork. So within a week, we had a credit card machine and sales jumped 70%. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And so within the first few years of of attracting folks like Nancy and and some other really hardworking people, we were able to stop going into debt. We went into quite a lot of debt at the beginning. To, to rent a huge warehouse was such an expense. But we started then paying off our debt. Yeah, I was going to ask you about funding. How does that work? How do you um, fund this? Well, we were lucky in some ways. The Port Towns neighborhood, which is in the Anacostia Heritage area, just outside Northeast D.C., a lot of local activists in the Port Towns, the local officials, they'd heard that this place called Community Forklift was looking for a warehouse. And we initially thought we would be in D.C. But the Port Towns officials and activists said, no, no, we want a green business. We want something like you where we are. So they found a warehouse for us that was empty. And then they helped us get a low interest loan from the state, from a state fund. So we did have a pool of money at the beginning, at least to be able to go into debt with. Uh, We unfortunately used a few credit cards um, in the early years. But then we grew quickly. Like I said, we attracted lots of people. We attracted so much grassroots support. I could always tell a new customer the second they walked into the warehouse, they picked up their cell phone and called their cousin or their coworker. And it's like, you got to get down here. So we started attracting really loyal people. And now we are 97% self-funded just from the revenue from the store, from our online sales on eBay and Etsy. We're able to pay our rent and our insurance and our employees and even benefits for our employees. That's been a nice way that we've grown. We did not used to, uh, early on, there were not many benefits. And now we have health insurance and paid days off. We really want these to be good, real jobs, career jobs. So most of our, our revenue just comes through the sales in the store. But there's still so many other things we want to do. We've got a lot of dreams of expansion. We'd like to do deconstruction. We'd like to have a crew for that. That's going to be expensive for the equipment and the insurance. We would like to explore some other reuse options. We've helped to nurture a few small reuse entrepreneur startup businesses. There's a business that kind of upcycled broken things and made them into cool furniture and gifts. And she's grown like crazy. There's an upholsterer who has grown and he takes some of our scraps and broken stuff and makes them into beautiful pieces. So we'd like to help more small businesses locate in our area, businesses that do reuse and upcycling. But to do that, I think we're going to need grants. We've started to go after putting a lot of grant applications. and Back to the fundraising of your earlier career. Yes, yes. So we're, we're um, <laughs> starting to, to do more fundraising. We put a lot in. We've started to get a few things. The county executive, the local Prince George's County government has been wonderful. They've been really supportive of us. We have a lot of champions in the environmental division there. And uh, they, Prince George's County, for those who don't know, I just got to brag, it's actually diverting more waste from the landfill than any other county in the state. So they've got composting going on and they're really hoping that we'll continue to grow. They just had a press conference a month ago announcing that our whole industrial district where we're located, uh, we want it to become an eco-district. So they'll be offering tax credits for green businesses locating there and reuse businesses. They're really supportive. But yeah, we're definitely going to have to keep going after money from private foundations. We do have some funding too. There's going to be a sustainable parking lot and park and art park with upcycled art across the street from us to sort of transform a kind of ugly, scrubby area where a lot of trash currently goes into the Anacostia. It'll now become a beautiful place. So little by little, we're, we're getting there. Pretty cool. If people wanted to get in touch with Community Forklift or they want to find more information on you or get in touch with you, how do they do it? Well, the easiest way, you can find us on social media, Community Forklifts on Facebook or on Instagram or on Twitter. And you can also just go to communityforklift.org. Go to our website. We've got all sorts of information. So do you have any cool upcoming events that you want to tell anyone about? 
Oh, yeah. So um, we do a lot of fun stuff at Community Forklift. We try to keep it interesting. We always have something quirky going on. Uh, this summer, we've got a concert series. And coming up this fall on October 21st, we're going to have the Funkyard Festival. So it's sort of a celebration of local history and creative culture. So we're going to have some funk bands from the D.C. area playing. We're going to have possibly some local art cars uh, that will show up that you can climb into. We're going to have all sorts of activities and workshops on things like uh, how to repair your old house. So you get to enjoy a little art. We're going to have food trucks, live funk. It'll be a, a fun celebration. Awesome. And final question. We don't let anyone leave PreserveCast without answering it. And since you're a Marylander, we're going to make you answer it uh, with a Maryland answer, which is where is your favorite historic place in Maryland? So funny enough, my favorite historic place is actually younger than I am. I was born in 1978, and in 1979, the D of St. Mary's was built. And so that's a skipjack. It's owned by Captain Jackie Russell down in St. Mary's County. And he did, in the early 80s, he did a lot of tonging for oysters under sail, the historic way of doing it. And then he started operating it as an educational lab. And so when I was in school and summer camp, I took a, a couple of trips out on the skipjack and tongued up oysters and ate them on the spot. And uh, he taught me and a lot of other school kids about the connection between taking care of our environment and taking care of our history. So it's now, it's over at the Calvin Marine Museum. You can go and take a private charter on it if you want. And I also have, still have the educational tours. So it was definitely a formative spot in my in my childhood and still you know i still love it today yeah that's awesome it may be the most maryland dancer we've ever gotten an, an <laughs> oyster tonging skipjack that's awesome love it and uh, we really appreciate having you on today and thanks for all the good work that you're doing to help out preservationists here in the dc region thank you you don't need to open a history book to find us available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area, and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com on Facebook, or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving. <laughs>